The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. You can follow along um, on page 877 in the Bibles under your chairs. He also told this parable to some of, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went unto the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and other the tax collector. A Pharisee standing by him prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that they might touch him. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child does not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and rebuke. Rebuke. Distribute, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. For when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. We're in the middle of a series called Cross and Crown, the Gospel of Luke. And it's about the life of Jesus. And what we're seeing is that there's really nobody who has ever lived who is like Jesus. He stands out no matter where you come in here this morning. You might be a new believer. You might be a longtime believer. You might be a skeptic. You might be wondering what is this whole Jesus thing about. No matter where you fall on that map, it's hard to read the life of Jesus and see how he interacts with people, to see how he acts, the things that he does, the miracles that are attested to him, and the teachings that he gave, and not think that there's never been anybody like him before. And what we see in the life of Jesus, the reason that this book, the book of Luke, is called the Gospel of Luke is because the word gospel means good news. The story of who Jesus was and what he did is good news to us. But the interesting thing that stands out to me when I look at the life of Jesus is that he never, he never leads, he never does things exactly like we think he should do it. Jesus would have been a terrible church planter. 
So uh, in, in my limited church planter training, uh, they said, all right, here's the thing you've got to do. Uh, you've got to... You've got to create this church, and you've got to get some momentum going. You've got to gather some people and get your people to gather people, and you get over a certain number, and then you get them to gather people, and you get over a certain number, and, it, and you, you, it's, it's all about that, and Jesus never quite does it that way. Now, people come and hear Jesus teach, and they see what he's doing, and he does draw crowds, but oftentimes what seems to happen is right when he gets the momentum going, like right when he looks like the church is gonna launch and he's gonna have a, a big, huge Sunday gathering and he's gonna rake in a lot of offering and he's gonna fill the auditorium and have the rocking band and he's gonna you know, like fly out of the, the stage and have an awesome, like what we would consider modern ministry. Exactly at that moment, he says something that drives the people around him crazy. He says something that they can't quite understand. He tr it's like he's trying to get people not to follow him. And the reason it always looks like he doesn't go in the direction that we expect him to go is because we've been looking at the past few weeks is that really he's the king who's coming back to his fallen kingdom to make things right again. And we live in that fallen kingdom. And the way things are supposed to work don't work that way anymore. The things that God has given us, sex, our bodies, money, career, uh, vocation, uh, relationships with other people, entertainment, all those things are things that God has given us that are supposed to be good things that show us who he is, that we use to, to see parts of who he is, and we use those things to back to worship him and glorify him. We've turned those things in upon themselves, and we've used them for our own ends. And they're not, they, the reason that they don't work right, the reason that sex never seems to satisfy, or our relationships always tend to fall apart is because they weren't made for, to have the weight put upon them that we put upon them. He's made to be the center and everything is meant to, to fit around him. And when we change that around, things fall upon themselves. And that's why he has come as the king. We sing in the, the, we're seeing in the gospel of Luke, he's come as the king to make things right, to, to be the rightful king that takes back over his kingdom. But he comes and he has a different culture his kingdom than we have in ours. Jesus views things and sees things differently than we see them. And then the section that Christy read for us this morning from in Luke 18, verses nine through, she read through 23, we're really covering all the way down to verse 30. From We see three stories, three events that happens in Jesus' he's all, by the way, he's on his road to Jerusalem where he's gonna end up, he knows, he's gonna end up being uh, turned over, betrayed by one of his own disciples that are taking this journey with him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like you have like 12 buds that you're walking with, that you're sharing life with, like you're waking up in the morning together, you're eating all your meals together, you're serving together, and you know one of them is gonna betray you. I would be given the cold shoulder the whole time or trying to kick him out. Jesus keeps him in the midst. That's just interesting to me. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he has these three events. And what he's talking about in these three events are if Jesus has come to set up his kingdom, to make things right again, everything that is broken and out of order, to set things back in order, 
And he has a kingdom that is his kingdom, and then there's the kingdom of this world. That, that sometimes we think that we're just running our own kingdom, but actually we're servants of a whole nother dark kingdom. We're serving, if you're, you're either serving Jesus or you're serving the other side. You're either serving God or you're serving Satan, whether you serve it through yourself or you're serving him directly, you're serving him in his kingdom. This kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of this world. And he's telling us, how do we get into his kingdom? How do we get into his kingdom? You see, we're gonna see three things in these sections. We're gonna see who qualifies for Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is something that you want to be a part of. I don't know what sense you get, but when I watch the news day in and day out, I get the deep feeling like this is not the way things are supposed to be. I wish we could find peace and wholeness. And every leader we try, every economic system we try, no matter how much money you have or don't have in your bank account, bank account, no matter what house you live in, how big or how small, where you live in, in a gated community, if you live oceanfront, if you live back in the backwoods, if you live in a large city, a small town, no matter where we go, we can never quite find peace and wholeness. That's because that's only found on the rule and reign of Jesus. To be in the kingdom of Jesus is where we want to be. It's where we need to be. And so he's telling us who qualifies for Jesus' kingdom. He's gonna say, tell us what makes them qualify for Jesus' kingdom. And then why do these people qualify for Jesus' kingdom? First of all, who qualifies for his kingdom? And we have three stories here. So stick with me. We're gonna try to weave through all three of them. First of all, we have Jesus who starts off in verse nine. It says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It sounds like some churches I've been a part of. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Now, we may read this and we can read into, because we may know the way this kind of parable ends, we read into this like, hey man, this guy's kind of full of himself, right? But he had reason to be. He was a Pharisee. Now, when, if you've been in church a while, you hear the word Pharisee and you say, oh, these are the bad guys, right? But that's not the way they saw the Pharisees at this time. The Pharisees were, very, were people who followed God and were very, very serious about it. They said, we wanna make sure that we get into the kingdom of heaven and we're gonna do whatever we have to do to make sure that we follow God in whatever way he calls us to do it. So whenever he stands up and he says, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Now, what he's saying is a good thing. He's thanking God. God, I thank you because I'm trying to follow you. I thank you. You have done some sort of work in my life so that I'm not like these guys who are around me. And these guys he names are not cool guys, these are bad dudes. These are people that you and I would consider, these aren't people I want to hang out with. 
I'm not like extortioners, people who uh, take money or get money from other people by, uh, by dark means, unjust, adulterers, or like this tax collector. Now, to say the, 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 the name tax collector would be like poison in the mouth of a Jew. As a tax collector was a Jew who turned on his own people and said, hey, here's what I'll do. Because the way that the, we, they didn't have like a tax payment systems like we have that automatically comes out of your check. So when Rome comes to take the tax from you, somebody has to actually come to you personally and have you pay the tax that is due to, due to Rome. And so they would, Rome would hire locals who knew where everybody lived and who everybody was so they could go to them and ask them for the money or demand from them the money that was rightly, rightfully due to Rome. Now, Jews didn't want to do that in general because they didn't want to collect money for Rome. But what they really didn't want to do is because the way tax collectors made their money is if you owed Rome $1,000, they'd come to you and say, hey, you need to pay Rome the money you owe them is $1,500. And they would force you to pay the money, the extra money. They would pocket that and send the rest to Rome. So these Jews were under subjection to Rome unwillingly. And yet some, one, of, one of their own would turn and say, I'd rather have the money in my pocket than have the goodwill of the people around me. I'll, I'll rat them out and get the money from them and I'll line my own pocket in doing so. They were doubly looked down upon by the people around them. They were considered turncoats, scum. So when this Pharisee, who he describes what he does, he says, I fast twice a week. Well, here's the thing. The Old Testament only required fasting one time a week. That's a, like fasting and praying is a good thing, right? It is a good thing. He said, I do it. I don't just do it well, one time a week that you demand of me. I do it two times a week. And then he says, and I tithe, which is a mean to give a tenth, Back to God, I give tithes of all that I get. Now, what he's saying is I go above and beyond even in giving tithes in what you ask. Because the Old Testament required that you give tithes of certain crops. But what the Pharisees would do is say, we want to make sure God gets everything that he's entitled to. So if you would stop by their house, you say, hey, I, I brought you some, uh, some of these herbs that I grew in my garden. My wife had a little, our first time we tried to have a little container garden in her backyard. Some things went better than other things, but we give it a, gave it a shot. We don't have green thumbs. So my mom jokes that, not really jokes, she says like plants come to our house to die. Uh, we, we, every year we buy two poinsettias with really good intentions and they, by Christmas, it's like depressing. They're all dead and the, the leaves are falling everywhere. But we, we had a garden and one thing that went well this year was some of the herbs she had. She had basil and some other things. And so she took some joy when people would come over like Miss Carolyn and say, hey, do you want some basil? And go out there and cut off some basil or some mint and take it. So if that happened, Miss Carolyn, when you got that basil from us, what if you were a Pharisee, when you went home, you would weigh that out and take out a tenth of what somebody gave you and give that to God to make sure that God got a tenth of every single thing that you got. This Pharisee is a good kind of, I'll be honest with you, I would like some of these guys to be a part of our church. These are people who are gonna come early to sit up. They're gonna give money. They're gonna be a part. Like they're, they're, they're in, right? Like you're like, this guy is a solid dude. Now off to the side of him in the temple away is a tax collector that he was pointing to traitor to his people, he probably was an extortioner, 
And his prayer looks different than the text than the Pharisee. You would usually pray by looking up to heaven. You're looking to where God was. And it says that the tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven. I'm not even worthy to look there. He beat his breasts, which was a sign of the time. He beat his chest, which is not like a WWE kind of move at the time. It was like a very, it was a full of, of torment. He beat his breast. And all that he said, his prayer, was God be merciful to me, sinner. Now, when the people who Jesus was teaching heard this, they would have agreed. This Pharisee has everything to thank God for that he's not like the people around him. And this tax collector is absolutely right. He should be beating his breast. He does not have the right to look up to heaven and he should be begging God for mercy because he is absolutely a sinner. Jesus throws a curveball in there with this sentence. Verse 14, I tell you this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Now justified meant, now this is an interesting thing, it meant that he went down as if he had sinned zero in his life. He went down back to his home that day in total right standing with God with nothing between him and God that he had done. Not only that, but it says, rather than the other. The man who had given a tenth of all the basil that he had gotten from Megan had fasted twice a week, bless his heart, had done everything that he was supposed to do, he went home unjustified. No man is perfect. Every single one of us, no matter how good you have been or I have been, we fail continually in even the smallest degree. His failure at this time, we'll give him credit Maybe he did do blamelessly all across the board, but his problem was he was trusting in himself and his own righteousness. This other man knew that he had empty hands. The next story that happened is Jesus is sitting. I don't know what he's doing. He's sitting around. And it says they, that means the crowds, verses 15, were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, that he would be a a way of blessing him. Now, this is a big deal in a couple of ways. One is uh, children weren't viewed the way that we view children at the time. Uh, A family would view children as to what they could do in the future. So if you have a future heir, a future son that could do something for you, or what they could do for you and your family right now. It's one reason people had large families is because they had to have a, they had farms, they had to have people like out, you know, milking the cow and working the, feeding the chickens and working the fields. Like the more kids you had, the more free farm hands you had. Plus, infant mortality or child mortality was very high. Many babies and many young children, when it says young children, many young children or infants 
died very early and they would be considered sometimes to be carriers of disease. So Jesus, a great religious ruler, we don't have any record of any great religious ruler up to this point who took the time to be with children, the forgotten ones, who were, may have been dirty, may have been diseased, but certainly forgotten by people. And people were bringing the children to him and he was taking the time to pray for them and bless them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them I said, get the kids away from here. Don't waste the master's time. Verse 16, but Jesus called to them and said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Now, this, is, this, this is clutch here. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, now he's looking at the disciples around him and the adults that are around him. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom. So he's talking about how to get into the kingdom. The first, the first story, he's talking about one of them went home justified. One of them entered the kingdom and one did not. Now he's saying another way that we enter the kingdom. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Then verse 18, a ruler now, Matthew tells us that this, this story of the rich ruler, as your uh, Bible may say, is in all three synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, in Matthew, it tells us that he is rich. So again, Jesus would be a terrible church planter because if you have a dude who is what is said in verse 23, extremely wealthy, and a ruler, so he's an important person who comes to your church. What you're supposed to do, he's supposed to like latch onto that dude and make sure he never leaves until you like make him a member that day. Like, let's lock this guy in. You want to be a deacon? You want to be elder? Let's close this deal right now so we get you locked in. But that's not what happens with Jesus. The, the, the rich young ruler asked him, good teacher, now, that's an interesting phrase because uh, Pharisees of the time would not have used the term good teacher to address someone because you would only say somebody was good. You would only use that, uh, that word about God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking, how do I make sure I'm getting in the kingdom? And Jesus Responded to him, oh, I'm so glad you came here. Come over here, sit down. Let me get, make sure you're comfortable. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's gonna answer his question. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder. There's five commandments he gives here. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now, it's interesting that out of the 10 commandments, he gave them five that are, uh, have to do with how we treat each other. Because those are things that we can see in our own life and people can see in your life. Hey, is this person doing these things? I don't know for certain whether you are worshiping God alone I don't know how your relationship is directly between him and you, but I can kind of see, and you can see in your own life, this is how I treat the people around me. Verse 21, and the ruler said, all these I've kept from my youth. So he's saying, these five commandments that you've given me, 
Since I came to the, that wording there has to do with the Jewish age of accountability. Since I came to the age of accountability, since I have been a youth, I have kept, I've nailed all those commandments. He just heard this. He said, oh, that's awesome. We'll make you an elder. No, he said, when he heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, I'm just gonna be absolutely, totally honest with you guys at this point. Every time I read this story, I find myself on the side of the rich young ruler. I feel like, Jesus, aren't you being a little bit extreme here? Aren't you asking a little bit much? Why didn't you ask any other rich person to sell all that they had and follow you? There are a lot of rich people that followed God throughout history. Job was incredibly wealthy two times over. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. David, as a king of Israel, he lived, I mean, he was a king, he lived like a king. Solomon was one of the richest people in history. He was so rich, had so much time on his hands, he had like 700 wives and concubines, just kept on adding to them. Incredibly wealthy. And yet this man who is, says, doesn't just say he's rich, it says he was extremely rich. Like there may be some of you in here that got some money in the bank, I don't, I don't have any idea. I doubt there's anybody in here that's extremely wealthy. He's extremely rich. And when I hear Jesus say this, I'm like, Jesus, this doesn't seem really fair. It seems extreme. It doesn't seem necessary for him to do this. And you are a terrible church planner, Jesus. You're not gonna build any kind of ministry interacting with people like this. Verse 23, but when he, when the ruler, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And he's gone. We don't see any further interaction with the ruler. He's like, man, that bar's too high. You don't understand I want a jet. How am I going to go back? The interesting thing in these three stories is that Jesus doesn't seem to question whether the Pharisee in the first parable, whenever he says that he was, like he's lived an exemplary life in his prayer to God, or when the ruler says, I've kept all these things from my youth, Jesus doesn't question them and say, no, you haven't. He kind of lets it stand there as if they had. And maybe they had. By any measure of, that we would have, these were good people. These are the people that you want to be the bedrock of your citizenry. 
a priest, a Pharisee, a Pharisee, excuse me, a religious leader who actually is trying to, he's not, he's not, he's not living, he's not flying a jet, he's not living in a gated community, he's really trying to live this life in the best way he possibly can, and this rich ruler who is uh, powerful and ruled, we don't know if he was a, ruled in the Jewish world or in the Roman world, but a rich ruler who is actually, who says, I've been trying to follow God, I've been keeping his commandments, and I want to know how to make sure I get in. They're good. And yet they either they turn they are turned away by Jesus. So who does Jesus say qualifies to get in? When he says that the tax collector went home justified, entering the kingdom, entering the kingdom, what he's saying is the dirty, the sinful the detestable, get into the kingdom. When he says that the children get in, or and you have to, if you're gonna come to him, if you're gonna receive the kingdom, you have to receive it like a child in order to enter it. He's saying that the lowly and the powerless and the overlooked enter the kingdom. And when he is addressing the ruler, After that, he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Now, the reason they're asking that is because in Jewish society, they viewed wealth and riches as a sign of blessing from God. And don't we know, like, somebody who's wealthy and rich has access to education and resources that other people can't. And so they're saying, hey, if this person who is wealthy and is trying to follow after you or try to follow after your commandments, if this person can't get in, then who can be saved? And he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What he's saying is that only the poor and the powerless enter the kingdom. And who is he saying as he goes through these three stories, who is he saying doesn't enter in? He's talking about the Pharisee. He says the good man, the good person doesn't enter the kingdom. He says, in the story of the children, he's saying the self-sufficient don't enter the kingdom. And when he interacts with the rich young ruler, he says the rich and the powerful don't enter the kingdom. Jesus is rejecting everybody that we would qualify. Because these people that he's, that he's saying, the Pharisee and the parable, and their actual, that's just a story. The rich young ruler who he actually personally interacts with, these are the cream of the crop. These are people you want to be on your team. This would be somebody, if you're in a community group with them, you're like, I want to be like this person, or I feel bad that I'm not like this person. In saying that these people don't get in, he isn't just saying, hey, I accept the second best or the third best 
or I accept those who are not doing well, but they're trying hard. He's saying, I accept the ones who are least, the least likely and the least wanted. He's saying, the people I accept on my team are honestly the people you and I wouldn't want to be on a team with. So if he's saying that's, that these are the people who qualify, then what makes them qualify for the kingdom? What makes them qualify? What, what is it that Jesus sees in them that differentiates them from the others that makes them qualify for Jesus' kingdom? As we already covered, well, first of all, let's see why would the Pharisee and why would the ruler not qualify? He starts off the story, the parable, uh, before he gives out the parable, it says that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteousness, that they were righteous, which means to be in right standing with God. I'm, I'm good, me and God are good. There's nothing that's separating me from him because what we believe about God is that God is a holy God and he cannot abide with sin. Because sin is, be, is being a traitor or a renegade to the God who, run, who created the heavens of the earth and runs the universe and is the God of eternity. So any sort of rebellion against him is an eternally damnable rebellion. He's infinitely good. If, if you have kids, don't, don't you like... Like, it's one thing if you're telling your kid, like, to do something that, that you can understand why they wouldn't want to do it. Like, every time my kids get sick, there's, there's a wrestling match to get them to take this little cup of medicine, which is the one thing that will make them better. Like, this will, I'm telling you, this will make you feel better. I'm going to let you drink a drink right after this, and I'll get you ice cream. I'll do whatever. We'll, we'll chase it with whatever we got to chase it with, but just get this down. I'm wrestling. But I can understand it doesn't taste good. But when you're trying to get them something that they, that they really need to do, and they just are obstinately not doing it, it's for their good. It just drives you crazy. God wants nothing but good for us, and we are always trying to go our other way. And he is nothing but good to us. Even when we are in rebellion against him, which is what our, all of us, our natural state is, he causes the sun to rise and set upon us. He gives us rain. He gives us air. He gives us good food to eat. Can you guys like just give me an amen that food is good? Maybe it's because I ate breakfast a long time ago, but right now to me, food seems really, really good. Absolutely, thank you. Like an amen on like fried chicken, man, that is awesome. A good juicy burger, if you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry. A, a wonderful salad. He does nothing but shine and pour goodness upon us even when we are rebellious against him and yet we turn against him. This Pharisee in this parable has a sense that he is self-sufficient. He has a sense of his own rightness. The, the problem of, with his prayer is kind of obvious when you look at it, but his prayer isn't really to God. It's about himself. God, I thank you. So he does give him a, some thanks, but I thank you that I'm nailing it. I am knocking this out of the park. Thank you that you made me 
so smart, so capable. Thank you that you made me a good person. Some of you in this room, you're naturally good people. Man, I I love to hate to be around you guys. You're just like naturally nice and butter doesn't melt in your mouth and you're just sweet and like, I love you guys. They're naturally good like that, but that's a dangerous thing to be, a naturally good person. Because you tend to trust in your own goodness. You tend to trust in your ability to be a good person. The reason the ruler isn't accepted is because he has a sense of his own goodness as well. He walks up to Jesus and calls him good teacher. He's like throwing the word good around. And Jesus asks, says, like, well, here's what you gotta do. You gotta keep the commandment. He's like, yeah, doing it, no problem. What's the next step? If he had really known, if he had really appreciated, if he had really felt that I am standing before the God of the universe who is, who is enthroned in holiness whenever he wasn't, before he was encased in manhood, who in his presence no sin, no evil can stand, I don't think he'd call himself good. Every episode that we have of anybody who comes into God's presence, or even not even God's presence, in an angel of God's presence, falls down on their face and is usually afraid they're gonna die because they're so aware that God is holy and I'm not. And that's the sense of this evil tax collector had standing in that temple. He was convicted of his sin. He was humbled by God. And when you're in that spot, all you have left is to beg for mercy. I'm bringing you nothing to the table. I don't have any reason to ask you to give me another chance. You don't owe me anything. And so all that I have to do is to come and beg and plead, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He he knows what sets him apart from the Pharisee, who is a good man, is that this tax collector knows what he deserves. The The Pharisee thinks he deserves a reward from God because he's been doing such a good job Tax collector knows that God owes him nothing. When Jesus says that he left justified or reckoned as righteous as his whole slate of his past history of sins, who, which were many sins, that, that, that he was justified, that was clean, that was wiped away, that was a scandalous statement to make. What about all the time and effort and attention and the good works that this Pharisee had put in? What about all the time and effort and sacrifice and energy that, this, that the rich young ruler had put in to try to do things the right way? If that's what makes people qualify for Jesus' kingdom, 
What is up here? What is going on? Why are the, why are the most unlikely people getting in and the likely people not? And not only not, but they're in, they're in danger of missing it. The Pharisee in this story is missing the kingdom. The rich young ruler is missing it. And not only that, but after that, after the, this episode with the rich young ruler, the, Peter says in verse 28, I love Peter because he's always speaking up. He just speaks his mind. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. He's like saying, hey, we have done what he won't do. We get a reward, right? Jesus says there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come. What he's saying is you haven't sacrificed anything. You didn't give up anything. You get the kingdom. You don't get a, like, we don't, God doesn't owe you because you did that. You get the kingdom, that's the prize. What Jesus is saying is those, the people who bring nothing to the table are the ones who get in. What he's saying is that he has open arms to those who have empty hands. Jesus has open arms to those who have empty hands. And it's only those who have empty hands. It's only those who say, I don't bring anything to this table. And that's why, that's why the most improbable people in these stories inherit the kingdom or enter the kingdom. And those who are most probable don't. Because the, this is really three stories about who gets the credit. Who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for who you are and what you've done? if you're walking with Jesus? Who gets the credit for you entering the kingdom? Do you get the credit? Do you get any of the credit for entering the kingdom? The reason that he accepts those who have empty hands with open arms is because he has designed salvation as such that he gets all the glory for it because that's what we were created to do. We were created to be totally and entirely dependent upon God as our father, like a child. That's why he says we have to receive the kingdom like a child, like a child who says, I bring nothing to the table. When my son comes to me and asks me for something, he has no pretense to himself. He's coming to me. He doesn't seem like, he, like sometimes there's bartering going on, but particularly like when you're younger, he has no bartering going on. I'm hungry. I need food. He has no idea that that food costs money. He has no idea that, that we bought, that we spent our last dime in order to buy him that dinner. He has no idea that. He just receives it. He may not even be that thankful for it. He just receives it with open arms. It's because it's, he is a child and he is helpless. And if we don't feed him, if we don't care for him, if we don't clean him and put him in bed, like that won't happen. He's totally helpless and hopeless. A young child is without their parent providing that for them. And that's the way that we're supposed to live our life. The opposite of faith, Justin talked about faith last night, last week. The, the, the opposite of faith is not doubt. 
You're like, hey, I have doubts about my faith. I'm not really, there's days I'm not really sure about this. You know, I've been a Christian a long time, but I'm not really sure like, hey, is Jesus real? What if I'm barking the wrong tree? That's, the opposite of faith is not doubt. Honestly, doubt is a part of faith. The opposite of faith in God is putting your faith somewhere else. It's putting your trust and reliance upon anything else, including your own goodness. There are some of us in here, we need to repent of our goodness. We need to repent because we really feel if we're honest with ourselves, we wouldn't vocalize it with the people around us. If we're honest with ourselves, we would really think God owes me something because I'm living an exemplary life or as exemplary as I can live. And therefore God owes me something. That's why you get angry and frustrated and surprised when something goes wrong in your life. You get angry with the world and you're really you're angry with God because you feel that he owes you something because you live in a barter system with God. God, I'll give you this and you're gonna give me something in return. God does not play barter. He has open arms for us, but only those who have empty hands. God won't let us trust in anything else. He cannot allow it. Why? Because it's an insult to him an insult to him. We're supposed to be absolutely and utterly dependent upon him for everything. It's, it's an insult to him, but you know what it is to us? It's ruined us. It's ruined us. The things that we place our faith in and trust in other than him will utterly fail us. There's no other way into the kingdom except empty hands. That's because humility is the necessary posture for faith. That's what we see in common. That's what the tax collector had. That's what the children had. That's what the rich young ruler did not have. Because humility presumes nothing, but it asks for everything. Humility presumes nothing, but it asks for everything. God gets all the glory. God alone gets all the glory. question is, does that move us? Does the thought of coming to him with empty hands, because really all our hands are empty, we just have facades that we bring something to the table. Is it just coming to him with empty hands, saying, I bring nothing to the table, I'm totally and absolutely, utterly dependent upon you for salvation and for everything in life, totally for you, no barter system, all that you have, from, all that I am, for all that you have for me, however you see fit to do it, does that move your heart? That moves the heart of a believer that God would get glory in your absolute and utter dependence upon him. If that doesn't move your heart, either your heart is far from God and has grown hard or perhaps you're not a believer. And this morning can be the morning you bow your knee to him 
God, I'm tired of playing games. Tired of playing some sort of poker game with you, some sort of barter system with you. I'll give you this and I get this in return. Empty hands or open arms. Question is, what are you trusting in? What are you relying upon? What are you clutching onto that you will not let go? That rich young ruler, if he had done what Jesus said for him to do, he would have lost a vast fortune. And I just hate that in my heart that I feel like he would have lost something. Because he would have gained Jesus and the kingdom if he had done that. We lose nothing by coming to him with empty hands. Receive his open arms. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.